Today, it's my pleasure to introduce, for the first time, Victor Kim. He's not yet ordained, but uh, he's planning on taking his licensure exam. And Victor, I didn't tell you this, but just give us a, a little three-sentence introduction and a little bit about yourself before you preach, and then he's going to conduct the rest of the service. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here to share the word with you this morning. A little bit about myself. I am originally from New York City. It's where I was raised. I went to undergraduate there and came to Philadelphia to attend seminary at Westminster Theological Seminary. I graduated in 2017 with the MDiv and currently work as the Director of Communications for the seminary. I'm currently also interning at Liberty in the River Wards area in Fishtown. It's a PCA church and under care with the Philadelphia Presbytery of the PCA, and uh, hope to take my exams in January, so uh, it's great to be here. Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Mark. We'll be looking at chapter 8, verses 22, all the way to 9-1. This can be found on page 844 in your pew Bibles. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let us give careful attention to its reading. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. He sent them to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He said to them, Truly I say to you, these there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
Um, at my church today, I am supposed to be serving with the children's ministry, but luckily I was able to uh, find a, a replacement so that I could come and share the word with you all this morning. Uh, serving the children at my church has uh, revealed to many one of my very glaring weaknesses that came up at uh, one of the lessons a few months ago. Uh, when it came turn to uh, do the activity, on the, sh- on the sheet of papers showed ten identical pictures, and the short activity was, find the one that's different. After some time, a student approaches me and asks for help. I'm having trouble finding the one that is different. So I look at my own piece of paper and think to myself, why is this children's coloring activity so difficult? (laughs) So there we sat looking at this sheet of paper for a while until one of the other students was able to bail me out and help the class find the one that was different. I've never been good at that. Suppose it's a skill I lack to this day. Where's Waldo books still haunt my childhood? But I don't feel bad about it. I know to varying degrees all of us, no matter how old we are, from our children to uh, adulthood, we need help finding things that are obscure from our sight. We need assistance when it comes to understanding difficult things. If you're a teacher, a parent, or even an older sibling, You know the immense amount of energy and effort it takes to teach someone something as simple as good manners or something like mathematics. I believe this principle also holds true when it comes to knowing who our God is and understanding how it is as believers we are called to live in this world. These things are difficult at times and we need much help to understand these things to understand difficult questions about our faith, to see the immeasurable worth of following Christ. It's my hope that this morning, uh, through Mark chapter 8, we're going to see that in order for us to live a life for Jesus, a life that is pleasing to the Lord, we first need God to reveal himself to us, reveal a true knowledge of who Christ is and the true worth in following that pattern of life that Jesus has set for us. And so my sermon this morning will follow two points, uh, knowing Christ and following Christ. Now for my first point, knowing Christ, uh, comparatively, if you look, uh, overall in the book of Mark, uh, the text that we covered was quite long compared to the length of the entire book. And I think when we look at it as a whole, in that unit that we looked at, there is a deep continuity and something very interesting in the way that the gospel message is portrayed through this narrative. First, we come and we see that some people brought to him, that is Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him, verse 22. Now, when we look at the very process that Jesus heals this man, it's not something we would expect. If you're familiar with the book of Mark, Mark's writing style is very terse, and one of his actually favorite words to use is immediately. And I already said it before, Mark is of the shortest of the Gospels. And so, when Jesus is healing someone in the book of Mark, we would expect it to happen how? Immediately, right? But here we see in Mark 8 that this description of how Jesus heals this blind man, it actually takes place in a few steps. First, 
Jesus leads the blind man out of town. He spits on his eyes, lays hands on him. This first set of steps after this happens, Jesus asks, do you see anything? The man responds by saying, yes, but no, right? I see people, but they look like trees walking. I can see something, but not really. For those of us, including myself, who rely on glasses or contact lenses uh, to see clearly, we might have an understanding of what uh, this man was talking about. Without the help of my lenses, if you ask me, can you see? And I would say yes. If you ask me, can you drive? I could say no. I can see something, but the lines are undefined. They're fuzzy. It's difficult to distinguish who is who. And so this man's sight is not fully restored. Verse 25 tells us that, again, Jesus lays his hands on his eyes and he opens his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. After reading this account, we might be tempted to ask ourselves, should we be concerned here? Should we be worried Throughout the Gospels, what we find here in Mark is one of only Jesus' miracles that does not seem to work immediately. It's as though the healing did not quite take on the first go-around. Maybe uh, the man needed a little more faith to restore his sight. Maybe he needed something stronger. So what's going on here? Is there a problem with the man's faith to be healed? Is there a problem with Jesus' power to heal this man? We would think that one touch from our Savior is all that it would take to heal this man instantaneously. I don't believe we should walk away from worship this morning with any of those conclusions, that somehow there were deficiencies in our Lord's power. Instead, I believe that Jesus chose to heal this man in a gradual way, very very intentionally. He did so to teach his disciples a lesson. From what we see in the previous chapter in Mark 7, we see something a little similar when Jesus is healing a deaf man. He does so in steps. He puts fingers in the man's ears. He spits and touches the tongue. He looks up to the heavens and commands, be opened. Here in Mark chapter 8, we see that healing complemented as Jesus is healing someone who is deaf and someone who is blind, healing them in progressive stages. And in this way, what Jesus is doing physically through healing actually points to a spiritual reality of God, how God's people actually come to understand Christ and his work. <clears throat> through the pairing of these miracles, Jesus demonstrates first that he is the promised Messiah, the promised king that would come to restore God's people. The one promised in Isaiah 29, whereas the prophet looks ahead to the day of restoration. In that day, the deaf shall hear, and out of the gloom and darkness of the eyes, the blind shall see. Jesus is the promised one who would come and open the eyes and ears for God's people. But what does it mean for us that it's Jesus who opens up eyes and ears to spiritual realities. What what does spiritual blindness even mean? What does it look like for someone to not have this spiritual sight? And I believe in one sense, this blindness of those refers to those who live apart from God. 
those who live in darkness and cannot understand the depth and reality of their own sins. Scripture is filled with examples of this. Take, for example, John chapter 3, where the apostle describes that there are those who love and live in darkness, whose actions are evil, and those who refuse to what? To come to the light. Proverbs chapter 2, it speaks of being delivered from the way of evil, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Just a few examples among many. And so what we see here in Mark 8 is that for anyone to have the veil of darkness of sin removed from their eyes, God himself must first come and take away that darkness. For anyone to come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on the cross, God must first come and open their eyes. And this is the case for myself and for any of us in this room here who have been saved and now belong to Jesus before even confessing that Jesus is Lord. Before even this was a thought in our mind, the Spirit of God was at work in us. We were completely helpless without God working in us. And it's it's not as though, it's never the case where we, out of our own human intellect, our human might, by reason that we have concluded that, well, you know, I've looked at all the, the facts before me, I've asked all of my questions, and through my own human reasoning, I've concluded that, yes, Jesus is Lord. It's not the case. From very beginning to end, it's God's work that would open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf to become utterly disgusted with their sins and recognize a need for Jesus and to call upon him in faith. Mark 8 not only tells us who it is that opens the eyes of the blind, but it also demonstrates the manner that this at times takes place gradually. Sometimes slowly. And in this way, I believe that the way that Jesus decides to heal this man is very intentional. It's actually a visual representation for those during that time and for us this morning of how God oftentimes removes the veil of darkness from sinners in order that they might see clearly. For us this morning, this should give us great encouragement as we think about those around us that do not yet know Christ as Lord. Even in uh, scanning the bulletin in the prayer request, there's a prayer request for someone's neighbor who is cancer to come to know Jesus and be saved. And that should give us great hope this morning in this text because whether it's a family member, a friend, a coworker, or whoever in your neighborhood, oftentimes I think we pray and expect dramatic conversions and grow discouraged after some time we see no change in that person's life. No difference in their attitude towards who Jesus is, or even their interest in attending church. Continue to pray for these people. Continue to pray and bring these people to the Lord. Pray for the Spirit to work in their lives that their hearts might be receptive to the gospel. We see today people bringing this blind man to Jesus and some sort of intercessory way. And in the same way, I believe that this calls us to continue to pray. Beg with Jesus to touch those 
around us. And we find confidence in knowing that it's God's work from beginning to end, that the work of the Spirit would reveal to them Jesus as Lord. I believe Mark chapter 8 also speaks to believers just as much as it does to unbelievers today. We see this illustrated with the disciples. When we consider our immediate context in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 to 21, the verses that precede our text this morning, recounts how Jesus responds to the disciples' inability to understand what he's doing. There's all kinds of signs, all these parables he's saying and teaching, but look in verse 17. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Here are Jesus' own disciples who have physical eyes and physical ears, but they are unable to see and hear truly. But notice what happens immediately, what follows after the healing of the blind man in our text today. As Jesus and his disciples continue on their way to Jerusalem towards the cross, he asks his disciples, very simple question, who do the people say that I am? This is not some kind of popularity contest that Jesus is looking to see what the polls say about who he is, but instead the very heart of Jesus' question is one of categories. What category do the people put me in? His disciples, they respond with, okay, answers. John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and one other, other the, one of the prophets. The answers from the people simply put Jesus in line with those that came before him. Very significant figures, different prophets, but they failed to identify Jesus in his unique role as the Messiah, as the Christ. In response to this answer, he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter responds correctly, you are the Christ. Peter here recognizes that Jesus is the king that Israel had waited for. The king that would come to establish peace and bring justice for God's people. Jesus was not in the same category as John the Baptist or the other prophets, but was the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior. In a parallel narrative that we find in Matthew, we see that Peter comes to this great point of theological clarity because it's God who revealed that to him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. After Peter's great confession, Jesus proceeds to teach his disciples a lesson. Drawing from Daniel 7 and uh, Daniel 7, Isaiah 53, that he must suffer, is going to be rejected by his own people, killed but raised from the dead. Peter, following up on his excellent confession, takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. And we need to understand that this word rebuke is the same word used when Jesus addresses demons, so we can understand the, the true weight of what Jesus is doing here and taking. Uh, what Peter is doing here by taking Jesus aside to rebuke him. But it might be easy to understand where Peter is coming from. Because in Peter's mind, suffering and rejection had no place 
with a promised king who would come to make all things new again. Here, Peter expresses his desire for a crown without a cross. Well, Jesus' response of get behind me, Satan, may seem a bit extreme. We remember that in Luke 4, the devil himself tempts Jesus with glory without suffering, without the cross. And as Jesus recognizes that Peter and the rest of his disciples are looking for a non-rejected, non-suffering servant, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. While Peter, as made evident in his confession, does see Jesus for what he truly is, for who he truly is, true knowledge, Jesus is the Christ. The way that Peter still sees him is like a tree walking about. The lines are fuzzy and undefined. He knows that he is the king, but can't quite understand how this king could come and die. Much like the blind man, the disciples, until they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, would not be able to truly understand what Jesus was doing, although they knew who he was truly. Although Peter was witnesses to the miracle, he did not understand its meaning. And it's interesting to think about that, because how much more clear can Jesus make this? Verse 32 tells us that Jesus explained this plainly. No parables, no hidden meaning. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected, killed, and after three days rise again. Right? It's very, very clear to us what's about to happen. And yet we see in Mark 14, a disillusioned Peter following Christ's arrest, denying who our Savior is. Denying our Savior. Like I said, it's only until the gift of the Holy Spirit comes upon them when they're able to see him. Truly. Much like the disciples, for those of us who have confessed Jesus as our Lord, our eyes have been opened to spiritual reality. We are given spiritual vision, so to speak. And yet, because we exist in such a time where, during which we wait Jesus' return, when he will fully restore all things to make all things new again, as we live in this broken world, we do struggle with spiritual nearsightedness. Now, when I say this, please do not take it in such a way that takes away any of the benefits that we receive through our union with Christ as we are saved. We are declared holy, justified, and righteous sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Nothing can ever take that away from us. But we also recognize that our process in this life is just that, a process of sanctification. We are a work in progress. And as we experience this spiritual nearsightedness, this often affects the way we heed Christ's call and how we are to live. And this brings me to my second and final point, following Christ. In our text this morning, Jesus clearly explains what it means to follow him and live a life for him. After responding to Peter's rebuke, Jesus calls upon the crown and explains the true cost of following him. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
today, uh, we often use this phrase, this is my cross to bear, or this is my cross to carry, a phrase, we use it quite flippantly. I can tell you about uh, my need that I need to go to PennDOT, uh, the DMV, and wait in those lines and renew my license and say, well, you know, that's it's just my cross to bear. But for Jesus' disciples, their understanding of the cross goes beyond how we see that term used today. During that time, the cross was a symbol of utter humiliation, complete shame. It was a disgusting thing. People went as far as to avoid it in using, using the term in casual conversations so as not to offend anyone. But here Jesus explains that this is the cost to follow me. You must take up a cross to do so. Church history tells us that all of Jesus' disciples died the death of martyrs. Some were crucified like Jesus, others killed in other ways. But while the cost of discipleship in our time, in our immediate context, might not require our lives to be given for the gospel, taking up a cross does involve a complete loss of who we are in order that we might follow Jesus. Every aspect of our thinking our relationships, our time and energy, the way we even use our money, our surrender to Jesus to follow him. So why on earth would anyone want to follow this Jesus who requires so much? We do so because in him we find true light. Verse 35, Jesus tells us that for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Despite the high cost of following Jesus, we as a church, we delight, don't we, to confess alongside Jesus every Sunday that Jesus is the Christ because in him, in Jesus, we find true light. Only in Jesus can we find a true life and a true sense of identity. There is nothing else in this creation that can offer what Jesus can give to us. What does it profit a man to gain the entire world? Only to lose his soul. In the gospel, Jesus gives us a true life to be lived. For us this morning, what does it look like then to follow Jesus and take up a cross? What does it mean that we surrender our entire lives to him? For uh, those younger in the room, this might mean standing up for what's right and what's wrong uh, in your schools. In the workplace, uh, taking up a cross might mean dying to ourselves uh, and working with integrity. In our conversations at work, how we consider our direct reports, how we even talk about our boss. Especially in today's culture, coming off of Pride Month in the month of June, following Jesus and taking up a cross means having hard conversations with those around us in love, as opposed to avoiding these conversations with our peers and those in our neighborhoods. We strive towards following Jesus. We need to can constantly go to God in prayer, asking him to continue to show us the beauty and glory of Christ, to take our eyes off ourselves and to fix our eyes instead on Jesus. And yet, although God has shown to us clearly who Jesus is and the way to follow Jesus, it's clearly expressed here in the book of Mark and throughout Scripture, how often do we as believers fail because of our spiritual nearsightedness. At times, the cost of following Jesus 
doesn't seem worth it. Might not make sense. We go to the Lord in prayer asking, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing in this situation? I really don't get it. We might know who Jesus is clearly and who our God is, and yet we struggle to see what he's doing oftentimes in this world. As we look at even the events of what's happening in Afghanistan, it's easy to question, what are you doing? We have many questions. We struggle struggle to apply the truths of Scripture to our lives, to apply it to this broken world. Our vision is often blurry and fuzzed. The lines are undefined. But we gather this morning, and we give thanks to God and worship Him that our salvation is not based on our best efforts to follow this call, our best efforts to pick ourselves up and to know Jesus more. No, we are saved none other than Jesus himself who carried his own cross, who suffered, who was rejected by his own people and was crucified. We are saved by Jesus who not only revealed who he is to us and the cost of discipleship, but according to Philippians 2, he denied himself in order that we might be saved. He did not count his own glory as something to be grasped, but instead he came freely into this world, denying himself, taking up a cross. And why did he do that? He did this to pay for our sins. He did this because we could not carry that cross. We could not bear that suffering that he endured. And although in this life we may struggle, at times, in spiritual nearsightedness to live a life following after Jesus, despite the very clear knowledge he's given to us here in Scripture. We continue to walk in faith, step by step, until that last day when we see Christ again, face to face, beholding the glory of our Lord. Let us respond to this message of grace with Uh, Hymn number 849, Be Thou My Vision. Hymn 849, let's stand together.
people of God, look up and receive the blessing of our God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.